Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 4, verse 1. I'll be reading a portion of that text, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 226. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together this morning as we get started. Lord, we need you to speak. My words are meaningless if they are not ultimately from you, and if you by your spirit do not work. So Lord, we need you to speak. So would you now let the words of my mouth And the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tom Girardi was an incredibly successful plaintiff's attorney for for many, many years. He uh, was an attorney in California. He was the first man in the state of California to win a million-dollar settlement in a medical malpractice suit. Founded a law firm that set up offices in downtown Los Angeles, uh, Girardi Keese, one of the most well-known litigation firms on the West Coast. 
His firm won huge sums of money from companies like Lockheed, every major Hollywood studio. Most, most famously, you've maybe not heard of him, but his company, uh, his firm, is the one who uh, sued Pacific Gas and Electric Company in a movie that's called Aaron Brockovich, kind of chronicles that lawsuit. And Girardi himself was actually the attorney on set to give uh, advice and just talk about how that worked and what it all looks like. But for all of the prominence that he enjoyed, he turned out to be a really poor representative. In February of this past year, Girardi was indicted on federal charges for stealing more than $18 million from his clients. So on multiple occasions, what he would do is he would win a settlement and he would go to his client and say it was one for this much when in reality it was one for this much. And he would siphon off hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars off the top without their knowledge. Instead of accurately mediating between his clients and the justice system, Mr. Girardi used that system for his own benefit. And that's the kind of situation that we find ourselves thrust into this morning as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 3 as well. We're going to cover both of these stories, and both stories highlight a major problem for God's people. And both stories show how God in his justice and in his mercy acts to solve these problems. Here's the main point. If you want First Samuel 2 and 3 kind of summed up for you, it's on the top of your note sheet. Be warned. God will not tolerate sinful or silent mediators. But be thankful because God raises up for himself a faithful mediator. Now, to organize our time together this morning, we are going to be talking about both chapters. You'll find the first part of the sermon is focusing a lot. We'll spend a lot of time in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and then spend some time at the end in 1 Samuel chapter 3. But we're going we're gonna to take them both together and look at the problems that are presented in this text. We're going to see the judgment that God incurs, that he renders to his, these people And then we'll look at the provision that God supplies. And my prayer for you, for me, and our time together is that we would see an overwhelming picture of God's goodness to his people, both in judgment and in mercy, and how he provides a better mediator. So let's begin, and we're going to look at the problems. You want to keep your Bibles open, and we'll walk through this text some together. Last week in 1 Samuel chapter 1, kind of first sermon in this series, there was a problem introduced there, but the problem was Hannah's barrenness, right? Hannah desired a child, but she could not conceive, and God, in his kindness, answered her prayer. She was able to have a little boy named Samuel. But as the story moves from the end of the beginning of chapter 2 and moves here to these new characters, the problem shifts away from brokenness in the world that we see in barrenness, and it moves to the problem of rebellion and of outright sin. And unfortunately, the problem here is not that the people of God are being corrupted by the Canaanite neighbors. This is homegrown sin, and not out in like Podunkville, but that is growing up inside the house of the Lord itself in the priesthood of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Verse, verse 12, cha- uh, sorry, chapter 2, yes, chapter 2, verse 12, 
big numbers are chapters, small numbers. Verses, if you're familiar with that. So verse 12 is like a headline over the story of Hophni and Phinehas. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And why? They did not know the Lord. And the rest of the text that Tyler read for us acts like evidence against them in the case built against them. So exhibit A is that these two men were religious bullies. They were religious bullies. Priests, if you remember, they they are serving in the temple. They don't raise livestock. They don't have fields that they keep and grow. So in places like Leviticus 7, 31 and 34... God says that he's going to provide for their needs. Okay, People are going to come and bring sacrificial offerings, specifically peace offerings, and the priests out of that offering are given the breast and the right thigh of the animal. That's how they were to be provided for. But Hophni and Phinehas are not content with God's provision for them. So in verse 13 and 14, when you see that little description and what they typically do, they instead, what they're doing is they really are stealing from the worshipers. They decide we're going to take whatever piece of meat we can get and not like little three-pronged fork. Think like King Trident, like big old Trident going out there. I'm going to stick this in the original potluck and whatever I pull out, this is what I get. Okay, so they're stealing from the worshipers. But then, to make matters worse, when they get tired of that boiled, kind of grayish lamb, they decide that they want ribeye, and they start demanding it. And this may just seem like, you know, they just get tired of boiled meat. Who wouldn't? But the problem is that that this is not just stealing from the worshipers. They've actually moved to stealing from the portion that belonged to God. Right, God, in those same things we read, or that I mentioned in, in Leviticus 7, said that all the fat was to be burned as a memorial offering to him. And now, Hophni and Phinehas send their little bouncer in there to say, we want that meat, the good meat that's raw. Give it to us. And even if a faithful worshiper of Yahweh says, "Just, I'll give you raw meat, but let me burn the fat to the Lord as he's commanded me. Now Hophni and Phinehas, their little servant is forcing them to do that. Say, I will take it by force. They're religious bullies using their authority in ways that defame the name of God. And then exhibit B against Hophni and Phinehas shows up in verse 22. Where they're said to be sexually immoral. Taking advantage of the women who served in the house of the Lord. The wickedness of these two priests is really clear throughout the text. It's really simple to see, but, but really the, the problem actually, if you keep reading, and if you look closely at what's happening, the problem extends upwards in the family tree as well to Eli. Now Tyler didn't read the end of chapter 2, but there we get this judgment that comes to Hophni and Phinehas, yes, but the judgment is also rendered on Eli. And you may wonder, why is that? Didn't, didn't he just kind of Say, this is not a good thing that you're doing. Didn't he come to his sons and remind them that this shouldn't happen? Yes, but, but I want to kind of bring you back. Remember what we talked about briefly in chapter 1, verse 14. If you remember there, when Eli sees Hannah in the temple and she's 
muttering under, she's mumbling a prayer. And when she goes up to him, he says very clearly, put your wine away from you. Now look back at 2, 23 and 25. It's a rebuke. It is a rebuke, but there is no, the author does not give us any explicit, clear command to cease from sin. In fact, it seems like Eli's concern might be more for his family's reputation. Don't you hear this report that's spreading among the people? He may be concerned more about his reputation than the reputation of the Lord. So he'll tell Hannah very clearly to put away her wine, but he won't tell his boys to put away their women. The story highlights throughout his spiritual blindness and ineffectiveness. Even as the story progresses, right? Eli starts the story with clear vision. And by chapter 3, it says that his eyes are grown dim. By the end of chapter, by chapter 4, he's totally blind. And that, that detail makes no difference in the flow of this story. And I think the author is telling us this physical blindness just mirrors the blindness that we see happening in Eli. The spiritual blindness that he is suffering from. Beyond that, the house of Eli is suffering from a fear problem. There's a fear problem going up and down. So for Hophni and Phinehas, they, there is no fear of God. They utterly disregard his commands. Now, Eli may fear the Lord, but in the end, he fears his sons more than he fears God. Look down in chapter 2, verse 29, and that's, that's the clear indictment, the second half of that verse. This is a man of God coming and speaking an oracle of judgment to Eli. He says, you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people is Israel. He honors his sons above God. And even beyond that, there's an indictment here that he is benefiting from their sin, too. Right? He was, they were the ones stealing the choice parts. They were taking the juicy, nice, well-marbled prime rib. But Eli, it says, is fattening yourselves. He is growing fat and happy. He had acquired a taste for choice meat. And given the opportunity, given the right to say, clearly, stop and remove these boys, he chooses his appetites for choice meat over hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we can be tempted. I, I'm tempted sometimes to give Eli a pass in this. I've, I've had meetings, and I've said to myself many times, like, I can't make my children righteous. I can't give them a new heart. Right To obey the Lord from the heart. Eli could not do that for Hophni and Phinehas. But Eli, just remember, Eli is not just a dad in Israel. He is a priest. He has upon him the responsibility of going between, of mediating between the people and God. So even if he could not force his sons to be righteous, he could have stopped them from their service. Indictment actually comes in chapter 3 in the word of the Lord to Samuel. He knew their iniquity. He knew they were dragging God's name through the mud. But in the end, he did not do the very necessary but difficult work of protecting God's name and reputation. 
Okay, so that's, that's the problem, a very clear problem that you see in chapter 2. There's a group of wicked, sinful priests, and their actions are actually muddying God's name for the people around them. Their, God's reputation is now being smattered with sin and with cowardice. The problem in chapter 3 is much more succinctly stated. So look in chapter 3 at verse 1 and you see the problem for this chapter. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And here's the problem. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. If we were just taking this text and you're reading kind of front to back in your Bibles, especially the first five or six books of the Old Testament, you would be impressed. You would just take note of how often the Lord speaks to his people. Right, so you've got these promises that he makes to Abraham and the Lord confirms those promises to Abraham's children. You get to Moses, and he's talking to Moses like all the time. It says he talks to him face to face in ways that are really unique. But then even when Moses goes off the scene and you get to Joshua, there's still the, the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the word of the Lord is coming to Joshua as they're going into the land. But after Joshua, once you get into Judges, the word of the Lord gets less and less and less frequent. Uh, maybe you remember the times like early in the pandemic when you go through a grocery store and things that you thought would just always be there. You're going through and it's not there. I, I had a text chain with some friends and anytime somebody found toilet paper, it was like a frenzy. Can you get me some? How much can you buy? Can we hoard this? That's what it feels like for God's people. The thing that has been there, the thing that they have relied on, his word has been flowing and then it stopped. And his people are suffering from a spiritual drought of God's word. And these are serious problems. And if you want to kind of sum it up, as I did kind of in the main point, this is the word that I'd say. They, they need new mediators. They need new mediators. Okay, the priests, they were tasked with, char- with bringing the offerings of the people to God. Of going between sinful, corrupt people to a holy God. But these priests are sinful and corrupt themselves to a degree where it is, it is hard to see the picture of what the Lord is doing in the sacrifices. God's people need to hear from him. But the prophets, those who had brought the word of God, at this point they are nearly non-existent. And to this problem, the Lord gives really a two-pronged answer. He's first going to bring down the wicked mediators who have wrongly represented him. That's what we see in the second point here. We see judgment fall upon Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Okay, so chapter 3 verse 1 tells us that the word of the Lord was rare. But then just a few verses earlier in 1 Samuel two twenty-seven through 36, we actually get one of those rare appearances of God's word. It is an unnamed prophet, a man of God, who comes and delivers an oracle from the Lord to Eli. And it's not a pleasant word, right? at least not for Eli and his sons. Look down at verse 27 of chapter 2. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt? Subject to the house of Pharaoh, 
Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To go up to my altar? To burn incense? To wear an aphid before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. In other words, do do you remember how good God has been to you? Do you remember how he chose Aaron and those after him to serve in the temple to mediate on his behalf? If you're an employee and you're pulled into a boss's office and they start saying, do you know how many people want to sit in your position? How competitive this was? Did I give you the the promotion and the accompanying raise that you asked for last year? You should be a little wary. The hammer is about to drop. And that's what happens in verse 29. If all of that is true, why, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. And then in verse 30, the judgment is rendered. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. So that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Eli's household had held a position of honor. They had been respected among Israel, but because he and his sons do not honor the Lord. God says he is bringing his house down in dishonor. The Lord then gives Eli a sign. uh, the, The prophet rather gives Eli a sign. This is how you know I'm a true prophet. I'm not just making this up. And it's there in verse 34. He says, both Hophni and Phinehas, these brothers, they're going to die on the same day. And the spoiler alert is that next week we'll see that they do. This is a true prophet. The prophet says in verse 35 that he's providing, that God is providing a new and faithful priest, which we'll come back to and rejoice in in just a moment. But then in this ironic twist, he finishes the prophecy in verse 36. He tells Eli that everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore this faithful priest for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's place. That I may eat a morsel of bread. Eli and his boys, they had made their living. They had, they had taken advantage of the people of Israel by stealing from the sacrifices of God's people and now the punishment fits the crime. Their house is told that one day they will beg for just a piece of bread from the priests. Do you remember what we read last week in Hannah and her prayer? Of God reversing the fortunes of the mighty and bringing them down and exalting the humble. Even just look in 1 Samuel 2 verse 5. You can look there. This is almost an immediate fulfillment of this. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. 
But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. God is reversing the fortunes of this priestly family, the family who would not be humbled, who refused to repent, who honored themselves above the Lord. Even in chapter 3, you may know the story of 1 Samuel chapter 3. It's told to kids. We hear a lot of the call of Samuel. Samuel hears the Lord calling. I'll read it all a little bit later. But we kind of forget that the first word, the first prophecy given to Samuel is not like, I'm so proud of you. You're doing great. It's I'm bringing down the house of Eli. That's the promise that is given there. The Lord is cutting off the house of Eli. Friends, the the Bible, the Bible consistently proclaims, I don't want to lose sight of this, God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. uh, This is true not just in the Old Testament, in the New. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we should glory We should thank God for his immense mercy towards sinners. But don't forget that God will protect his name and his reputation. He will not allow his name forever to be drug through the mud. Now, we may want to skip quickly past this. This is a heavy word, and I admit that. We will see some of these as we go throughout our time in the Bible and in Samuel itself. But I think we do need to pause. This is the first part of that main point. Be warned. Be warned, friends. And we need to, to heed the warnings we find this text in this text. And really, I've got three there on your note sheet, kind of thinking through the three groups, at least, of characters that we're seeing here. First, we should learn from Hophni and Phineas the dangerous and deadly difference between knowing about the Lord and genuinely, savingly knowing the Lord. Hophni and Phineas friends probably had better Sunday school attendance than any one of us ever had. Uh, we just started like Bible memory stuff with kids today. They they would school us all in that. They they had probably memorized prayers that they had said every day from their youth. They had sacrificed thousands of lambs and bulls and goats. But for all of their acquaintance with the things about the Lord, verse 12 tells us they did not know the Lord. In their case, familiarity had bred contempt. And this is one of those things I feel that just makes even evangelism in a place like Birmingham, Alabama, in the Bible Belt, this is, makes this complex and sometimes difficult. Right? We have, we have neighbors. I have good friends. Uh, I don't have coworkers who are in this category. I wrote that down and then realized I only work with one of the guy and he's in the room, so that's weird. But, but this, you have coworkers who are in this kind of category, family members, classmates, who may, may be able, if I started singing just as I am, like they just come right on in, finish out every verse of it. They, they've, at, they've worked and volunteered at VBS since they were able to do it, but they have never. They're, they're, just, they're acquainted with the things of God, but they have never repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. They, they may claim the name Christian, but for some, some like Hophni and Phineas, they may claim that name. And the fruit of their lives is just rotten wickedness that they refuse to let go of. 
for, for others, maybe, maybe even for more people that I'm aware of, it's, it's not that they're like Hophni and Phinehas. It's like they're the Pharisees of the New Testament, right? Acquainted with the things of God. So that Jesus says, you're like whitewashed tombs. Nice and pretty on the outside. Death residing on the inside. Dean and Sarah, he's a pastor in Tallahassee. He's got a passion really for doing evangelism among people who are culturally Christian. People who would say they're Christian but who, who have not fully trusted and not really trusted in Christ. And he, he writes this in a book of his. He says, this is certainly a generalization, but the hallmark of cultural Christianity is typically familiarity or even comfort with biblical principles without a sense of personal need for salvation. So friends, do you know a great deal about the Lord? Do you feel comfortable with the rhythms of church life and all sorts of things? That's, that's good. I don't think you need to feel ashamed and worried about that. That's good. But all of that knowledge about the Lord is meaningless, worthless, if you do not repent and believe in Christ for salvation alone. So whether you are the hypocrite like Hophni and Phinehas, or you are the self-righteous Pharisee, what you need is not more information. Sin is not a problem of information. It's a problem of rebellion. What you need is to repent and trust in this good God. And if you turn to him, he will by no means cast you out. Now, I'm happy if you have questions about that. If you're a visitor and that's new information to you, so glad you're here. I would love to talk with you about, about this question after service. How can I know if I know about God or if I genuinely know Him? I'll be up here after the service. You can talk to me. Talk to any Christian here. Kids, I think I put this on your kind of kid question sheet on the front. It's a good conversation to have with your parents. How do I know? How do I think about knowing about God versus genuinely, savingly knowing him. That is an important and eternally important distinction that we see in Hophni and Phinehas. Second, we should learn from Eli the deadly temptation of fearing man more than we fear God. Uh, There's a Christian counselor by the name of Ed Welch, and he has a a relatively well-known book uh, among Christian kind of pastors and counseling circles, and it's called When People Are Big... And God is small. And I just love even the phrase, the phrasing of that title. That's, that's what I feel like in my own heart when I experience the fear of man before the fear of God. People are big and God in my sight has grown small. That's, that's exactly what's happening with Eli. Eli has convinced himself he needs the approval of his boys. He likes the choice meat he's getting. And so all of a sudden his boys loom large in his sight. And God has kind of drifted off to the back corner of the house of the Lord. Some place where he doesn't really have to pay attention to him. And that's the same thing that happens inside of our hearts all the time. When we come face to face with fear of man. And whether we will fear man or God. This is what is happening. This is what happening, kids, in your school. When you are faced with peer pressure to disrespect, disobey your teachers. You are going to be constantly asking yourself, who is going to be big? Are my friends or God going to loom large in my sight? 
This is what happens with your coworkers when you, you get into talking about somebody else and like there's this momentum going and you know, I just want to fit in and if I can talk about this guy behind his back and just get some jabs in, that'll give me respect. I'll fit in with this crew. And you have to answer the question, who is going to loom large in your sight? Is it going to be the fear of these people right in front of you or the fear of the Lord? We, many of us, will fight this from now to the grave. This is, this is a perpetual problem. This is not a problem for uh, you people out there. This is a problem for me, for pastors and elders, for those who are new to the Christian faith and feel like, I don't think anybody else feels like this. Welcome to the crowd. We all feel like this at times. And we have to trust that the Lord is faithful. We have to make the small decisions along the way that in this little way, I will fear God. I will obey this commandment so that when I'm faced with bigger things, I will walk with him and trust that he is able, that he is more important, that he looms large in our sight. This is, this is not just a small thing in a small pocket of people. This is something we fight tooth and nail to the day we die. And friends, we need one another to help fight this as well. Which gets to our last point here. We should learn from the Lord the necessary but difficult work of loving God's name enough to protect it. Of loving God's name enough to protect it. The third commandment that God gave Moses is, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, Hophni and Phinehas, I'm, I'm guessing they, they may have obeyed that really well in terms of the words that have come out of their mouth. They've, they've probably got all ten commandments memorized. They can do lots of them. Uh, not all of them, obviously, but some of them, they're like, yeah, I can, I can do that. That's an easy one for me. But, but their lives are like walking billboards. They, they are the priests. They actually wear the ephod. They carry the name of the Lord their God on themselves, physically, literally, in what they're looking like. And in the way that they are approach the Lord, in the way that people see him, they are bearing the name of the Lord every day in vanity. They're painting a picture as those who carry the name of the Lord, but they lie about what God is actually like. In church, the name and reputation of the Lord matters a great deal. So in claiming to be a Christian, you are claiming to be walking as a representative of Christ. And we... In claiming, claiming to be a Christian church, we're saying that our life together, members of Philadelphia Baptist Church, our life is meant to be a display of God's glory. And this is a reason why Jesus gives his church commands regarding difficult things like church discipline. Because he, he cares about protecting his name and his reputation among the nations. This is a commitment that is there in our church covenant. So if you're a member of Philadelphia Baptist Church, you've committed to doing this. Listen, we will walk together in brotherly love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another by faithfully and compassionately correcting and encouraging one another as occasion may require. Our speech and our life together, it's we're wanting to build one another up. I love doing that. I love when many of you come and encourage other people. I love seeing it among you. But this work also says that we will correct others when occasion may require. So 
if Dave or Graham or Ron see me walking in sin, it may be really hard. It may be very difficult. But because they love me, and even more than that, because they love the name of Jesus Christ among this community and among the nations, the difficult work that they are called to do is to call and tell me to repent, to protect the name of the Lord. And that's not because we just really like policing other people. It's because we are out to guard Christ's name to a watching world. Now this, this judgment is something we may cringe at when we hear talk about, but, but judgment, judgment is a right warning about the holiness of the God that we worship. And the fact that He will not be despised among the nations. So if we long to see the name of God go not just to the ends of the earth, but in our own community, and we have churches that portray a picture of this God as something that is not what He's like, That is a very serious offense. We should long to see God's name go forward. And we should take it as a mercy when God protects his name. But God's mercy in these chapters abound all the more as well. It's not a story only of judgment, but of mercy. Because not only is God judging the house of Eli, he's saying he's providing what his people need as well. So let's get to the provision. And you, you probably, even in the reading of the story that Tyler read for us, you, you kind of see this coming. Uh, it's, I love First Samuel just because it's literarily wonderful. And so what's happening throughout this is you see picture of Hophni and Phinehas, picture of Samuel. Picture of Hophni and Phinehas, picture of Samuel. And over and over, what you're meant to do, what I think you do is say, bad, good. Going down, coming up. God is even kind of quietly throughout those first chapters of chapter 2. No real action. Samuel's not doing a lot, but God is saying he is raising up for himself a replacement, a faithful priest. And then even towards the end of chapter 2, it said we'd come back to this this unnamed prophet in Samuel 2.35. He makes this proclamation. He says, get the Lord speaking through him, says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now there, there's a, some debate about who this is talking about in the context of First Samuel. I do think it makes sense. We can say there's kind of multiple places where we see this fulfilled. So I think it makes sense to say in the flow of this passage. It seems that the Lord is raising up Samuel as a faithful priest. But then as a more full fulfillment in the uh, scope of the Old Testament, if you want to just jot this down, it's 1 Kings 2.27. 1 Kings 2.27. And there, David's son Solomon is king, and he, as one of his first things he does is he makes a change in the priesthood. He removes the great-great-grandson of Eli, a man named Abiathar. And the author in 1 Kings 2.27, just to make explicit what's happening, he says, So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli to Shiloh. It may take a couple of generations, but God fulfills his promise here. And then a few verses later, we're told that a new man, a man named Zadok, is is now the new priest. And Zadok is this priest who has the new jobs that Eli's household had. 
We see God's persistent mercy in bringing up a new priestly line that will rightly represent me, rightly represent the Lord. He provides a mediator. Right? He brings the mediator that they need. We want to go offer sacrifices and relate rightly to our God. And God brings that new priest. But then he also goes on to solve the problem of not having a mediator to speak on his behalf. Right? So God provides a faithful prophet. Uh, we've already set the stage. If you're worried about time, don't be. This is gonna, chapter three will go pretty quick. You all, many of you already know it. The word of the Lord is rare. Eli is getting old. His eyesight is failing. What you said is, I think, just something that is not just his eyesight, but about his spiritual sight as well. And the boy Samuel is laying down in the temple. So look at verse First uh, Samuel 3, starting in verse 4, and you kind of get this humorous story of what happens with Samuel and how the Lord provides a prophet. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli, finally, we may add, perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. It may take a few times, right, for bleary-eyed Eli to realize what's going on, but eventually he figures it out. And the Lord, whose voice is rare, is now speaking to Samuel clearly. And what he tells, uh, what he tells Samuel is what we've already referenced, that he's going to judge Eli's house. That's verses 11 through 14. The next morning, Eli comes out, uh, or sorry, Samuel comes out and Eli says, like, I know something happened, so tell me. I, you have to tell me. And he really compels Samuel to tell him. We read that Eli was afraid, but Eli is a good prophet. Right? Eli is afraid, but he tells, tells uh, sorry, Samuel is afraid, but he tells Eli about his coming doom, which Eli receives. And then the conclusion of the story highlights the way this scarce word of the Lord is once again flowing freely through his prophet. So look at verse 19 of chapter 3. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. A drought in the land. The word is rare. And now the word is coming to all of Israel. God is now speaking. When we started this story, God's people had their access to the Lord hindered. Right? They, had, they had wicked priests and they were starving to hear from the word of God. And by the end, we see the provision of a faithful mediator. God's people now can hear from him clearly. And they can approach him without these sinful, wicked priests standing in the way. Isn't God good? 
Isn't God good to bring this little boy Samuel to speak his word and to offer right sacrifices? Brothers and sisters, this is a story that should make us long, long for a right mediator. And as those who look back on this story, not from 1 Samuel or even 1 Kings, but through the lens of the cross, we should stop and give thanks to God that in his mercy, he has provided. Do you want to hear from God? Do you want to have him speak with you to give him his own word to correct, to guide, to comfort and encourage? And friend, you need a mediator. And there's, there's an important sense in which we should be so grateful that we have this, in some sense, in the scripture, God's word breathed out to us. Just, just think for a moment. Pause and marvel at what you're holding in your hands and in your phones and on your laps. There was a a scarcity of the word of the Lord in Israel. And then God brings about Samuel. And so now there's not a desert, but there's just like an oasis, right? You can go and hear the word of the Lord here. It's mediated here. And then from from here, from Samuel to Today, we, we're not an oasis. We're in a rainforest, friends. We, we have the word of the Lord here in our laps. But beyond this and what this word is ultimately pointing to, if you have this book and you don't read it this way, this word is ultimately dependent upon and flowing to, pointing to the one who is the word made flesh. Remember what John tells us at the beginning of his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and then this verse 18 no one has ever seen god a famine the only god though who is at the father's side he has made him known He has made him known. If you want to know what God is like, if you know you need someone to tell you about him, rejoice, friends, because we have the perfect prophet, the true and better prophet we sang about earlier in Christ. Do you want to come to God and have fellowship with him? You don't just want to hear from him, but you actually want to approach him. Then you need a mediator. You, like Israel before you, have sin that needs to be dealt with. You don't just casually walk into the presence of the Lord. You need a priest who will offer up sacrifices on your behalf so that you can draw near. And in Christ, that's exactly what God has given us. And our priest is nothing like these wicked boys, Hophni and Phinehas. He's nothing like the wicked pastors that you may know and think about. We're told that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself The Lord promised that he would raise up a priest whose house would endure. 
Someone whose line would never end, who would go in and out before the anointed forever. And the, the line of Zadok that you read about in Second Kings, that one that lasted a really long time, I don't think there's a line of Zadokian priests just going out and continuing to do that today. It faded. But the priesthood of Jesus Christ goes on today. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This this very moment, friend, if you feel distant from God, if you think, I need people praying for me, you have a mediator who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you at this moment. And every time we go to him, When we say, in Jesus' name, amen, we're reminding ourselves, I get to him because I've got one who has already made that possible. And it is only through him. Friends, we should praise God for his provision. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. And worship him. Oh, Lord, we marvel at your grace to us. Lord, we ourselves, left in our sin, have no way to get to you. And not only that, we are the rebellious or the self-righteous. The ones standing in the way of ourselves and others getting to you, being reconciled to God. And you, in your mercy, in your kindness, have sent us your son. So Lord, help us to have him high in our sight, to help us to fear him, to worship him and glory in him above all others. And we pray this now in the name of our great high priest, Jesus. Amen.